So we're starting a brand new series today. Uh, it's on Romans 12 through 16. And uh, yeah, we can go now. And so it's called The Fellowship of the Gospel. And so it's the last series, the fourth and last series through the book of Romans. So we've done four series through the book of Romans, or the letter to the Romans. And each one uh, was a, you know, there's four distinct sections to Romans. So, um, so if, if you're brand new to Five Oaks, and uh, I haven't seen every face clearly, so I don't know, but if you're brand new to Five Oaks or fairly new to Five Oaks, this sermon is going to be uh, a very different style sermon than what uh, we're used to around here. And um, I warned everybody last week, I said this week, well, I didn't ever, in every service, but I said this week is going to be sermon classroom uh, because I'm geeking out on this passage. And so forgive me, it's somewhat self-indulgent. But I think it, uh, with good, good purposes, I think it'll accomplish uh, some things that, that we need to accomplish. So uh, the other thing, too, is I don't know if we'll get through the whole outline today because of the stuff that I'm doing. I don't know how long it's going to take me. And so I may have to stop at a certain point and cut some things for tomorrow. So just, just bear with me. I'll, I'll try to just even cover things rather quickly so that you're not uh, behind on it, you know, going into next week. Um, I wanted to start this, since we're going back to Romans, we've had uh, a lot of new people come to Five Oaks in recent weeks and months, and uh, so I wanted to talk a little bit about how we do sermons at Five Oaks before we jump into the passage. And specifically, I want to talk about five ways that the sermons that we seek to, to contribute to your life in the way that we do our, our sermons here. So this isn't in the outlines, but if you want to find a little space, if you're interested in doing that, you can, you can do that. So I want to talk about five things, five different ways that we, and even if you've been around for a, for a while, it'll help you maybe understand a little bit better why we do things the way that we do them. So one of the things that we do is we preach expository sermons. Now that's a, it's a big word, but basically expository sermons means that we are expounding on Scripture, we're explaining its meaning and significance. And so it's not just that we are like referencing Scripture and then kind of going off on, on other things. We, we expound on the Scripture. Uh, expository is oftentimes uh, also associated with preaching through books of the Bible. So about half the time, we're preaching through, specifically through entire books of the Bible and working our way through it. Even when we do a topical series or a topical sermon, I'm usually focused on expounding one or two, maybe three passages, not just, again, referencing those. Sometimes we do theological series, so it's a little different than expository. It's where we see what is the theology of a particular subject uh, in Scripture. And you might say that the last series that we did on Christian sexuality uh, would be kind of a mixture of both. It was like an eight-week, in a sense, an eight-week exposition on that passage in Matthew 19 where Jesus talks about sexuality. And at the same time, it was a theological uh, kind of stepping back and saying, in the whole of Scripture, what do we learn about sexuality uh, from a gospel, from a thoroughly gospel perspective, not just looking for the rules and seeing, you know, what, 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 what we can do, what we can't do, which is not how we're really supposed to uh, go at this. 
Second thing is we work our way through series. Uh, so we always do series. This is my 191st series since I came here. And uh, it, I thought it was 200 for a second. I thought, man, that's perfect. I'm just starting my 26th year in 200, but it's actually 191 and maybe 190. Sometimes the number, something in the numbers, I got to do a little bit of extra uh, figuring out. But 191 series, I think. And the reason we do that is for a couple of reasons. It gives you a framework for understanding Scripture when we do a series. So series, especially through a book of the Bible, it, it, it helps us remember, as we're going to do today in Romans, we've got to constantly look back and what's coming forward and kind of the structure of that book of the Bible. Uh, but it also helps us to go in depth on any subject that we're looking at. So we may be doing a theological topic like Christian sexuality, and we, we have time to kind of like spread it out and be able to really go in depth. That's why uh, we do series. And when you don't do series, the reality is, is you know, it's every week. It's like, what am I going to preach on this week? And that doesn't usually turn out well. I'll just tell you that much. It doesn't usually turn out well. So our sermons are thirdly about listening to God speak through the Scripture. So we have a four, four movements in our Order of service or liturgy uh, is what that word usually, the word that stands for order of service. And so it's the third or, or the second, move, second movement in our worship. And, and so the order of our service is informed by the gospel, loosely informed by the gospel, and also informed by a pattern that is in Scripture from beginning to end, that when God gives revelation and we listen then he always calls for a response. And the response may be to think about things differently. It may be to take action. It may be to change our ways, to choose a new path. But it's a revelation and response uh, type of, of, of pattern that is in Scripture. Uh, uh, fourthly, our sermons are about equipping people in a life of dis discipleship. That's, that's what it's about for following Jesus. I, uh, whenever, whoever's preaching here, myself or someone else from our team, uh, if, you, you know, if you think of your whole week as a pie, we get a little tiny sliver, I mean a really little tiny sliver to speak into your whole week. And discipleship is about the whole week. It's not just about you know, what happens on the weekend, of course. So we get a little tiny sliver, and then we come back in at various points, maybe through a small group, as you go back to the passage and you think about some of the stuff that you may have learned, and then uh, maybe you're doing daily life, the devotional, and it's going over the same passage and all that sort of thing. So we have this really important time to not just give you something for right now, but something that is going to equip you for every day. And, and so that's what we're trying to do every single week. We're not trying to give you a thought for the week so that you feel better about your week. We're not trying to give you, uh, we're not trying to entertain you, uh, although we don't want to bore you. We want, we want to engage you in, in learning. And it's, it's really all about, in equipping for discipleship, it's all about growing in wisdom and doing that together. The whole Bible is a book of wisdom. We're going to talk about that next week. Um, in, in a little bit more detail. Now, related to this, if a person is not a follower of Jesus, if you're not a follower of Jesus, if, if someone, you know, comes and is not a follower of Jesus, we invite that, we want that, we want people participating, but the sermon is not 
directed at the person who's not a follower of Jesus. It's about equipping people for discipleship. But the reality is just about everything that we teach that equips people for discipleship is going to be helpful for anybody. And for the person who's not yet a follower of Jesus, it gives them a chance to kind of preview what is Christianity about? What does it mean to follow Jesus? And, and so it gives the opportunity to, to do that. And so um, the other thing is we, we, we preach the gospel every week, the big story of all the way from creation, the new creation, the big piece of the gospel is what Jesus did to reconcile us to God. We preach that every swing, single week, or at least we try to. And we never outgrow that. doesn't matter if you've been a Christian for 55, 75 years, or you, are, you need to receive Christ into your life and begin a relationship with Him. We all need the gospel. We all need grace. We never, we never outgrow it. And then finally, uh, we always talk about and we preach within the story of God. We always think about this being a story, and we want you to know the story. And, and you understand the Bible better when you understand the story. It's a unified story uh, about Jesus. And as you get to know the storyline of the Bible, uh, you get more out of the sermons and you get more understanding out of your own Bible reading and Bible study with other people. And so we try to always keep in mind that not everybody has that kind of background in the Bible. So we try to kind of fill in a little bit of information each sermon, but we can't constantly be going over the basics. So one of the things that we just assume is that people will take our story of God course. And so back in the New Testament times, people were coming out of paganism where they, you know, uh, Greek people from different countries in the Roman Empire, different Roman people who would, would come to faith and they had no Bible background whatsoever. It was a completely paganized culture. And so they believed in multiple gods and uh, had philosophies, followed philosophies that had very little to do with Scripture. And within a few short weeks, they would orient them to the entire Bible. And you know that by reading the letters. They quote the Bible all the time in the epistles of the New Testament, and they do it expecting people to understand it. So we have the same thing uh, as, a, as a church. We don't want to dumb down the teaching of the Scripture. We want to raise people's understanding. We want to go into the shallows and so that everybody can understand, but we want to constantly help people go into the deeper part and swim in the deeper parts as, as well. So that's, those are some of the things about um, our sermons. Now, since we're jumping back into Romans, I wanted to say a few things about Romans uh, so that you can better understand Romans and unlock its meaning uh, for, your, for your life. I was looking for you to change the, the slide, Chris, but I'm controlling the slides today. Uh, which is making me really nervous. Um, so, and you'll see why in a few moments. Okay, so here's a little bit about Romans. Romans is a letter written to house churches in Rome in the first century, all right, probably in the 60s of the first century. And so uh, we have to remember constantly as we're reading Romans that it was, it's written in an ancient language, in an ancient culture, in all, in different cultural expressions than what we have. Uh, you can't just take the words and just, boom, translate them into English and think you'll understand them. You won't. It's an ancient culture. You can't do that with any language, especially if people are from a different type of culture. Uh, let's say, an, for, for English, for us, if you're translating the language of someone, say, in Western Europe, it's going to be a lot like our culture. But if you're translating something from South America or from uh, Africa or from the East, from China or whatever, 
just translating words isn't going, to, isn't going to accomplish a transfer of meaning because the cultures are so different. So one thing that we talked about when we started Romans is to remember that Romans is not written to us, but it's written for us. And we've got to remember that because we're always asking, what did Paul, the writer of it, what did he intend as he was writing to them before we can ask what is its meaning for us? We can't just jump to what is its meaning for me uh, because it's, it's really a misuse of, of what it actually is, a letter written to real people in churches. Uh, secondly, it is considered... Uh, the greatest and most influential letter ever written in all of history. It has been the catalyst for major, major movements, the Reformation being one of them, uh, but it goes way beyond that. It has started so many renewals within the church over the last 2,000 years, and it's been at the center of some of the most important theologians, uh, their, their thinking. Uh, it, it is not exaggerating. It is not even nearly exaggerating or even coming close to exaggerating to say it is the greatest and most influential letter that was ever written. And then finally, it's carefully and painstakingly written. Now, next week, this point is really going to come. You're going to see it this week as well. Next week, I'm going to uh, go into it a little bit more in detail. But a lot of people think of the Bible or at least treat the Bible as if all that the writers of Scripture did was to hear God speak, God dictated, and they sat down and wrote what God dictated. There's not any passage of Scripture that's like that. There might be a time where a prophet is almost dictating, you know, what God dictated, and they wrote down the very words that the prophet gave. Uh, but uh, it's, just, it's just rare for that kind of thing to be found in Scripture. Uh, it is, it's, it's, just, it's not done that way, and it's very clearly clear that it's not done that way as you read it. But we treat it that way a lot of times. Um, for one thing, to just show that it's not, is that the various books are written in very different styles different kind of language, different sophistication of language. So in the New Testament written in Greek, some have much higher Greek and some have more of a everyday type of Greek that would have been used in that day. And so another misconception I think a lot of times is that Paul sat down and you know, kind of in the quiet of his own room with a candle burning or a lantern burning sat down and through some kind of osmosis of the Spirit, sat down and wrote out the letter to the Romans. Well, that would have taken about 18 hours in that day to be able to do that. Um, Paul, in his letters, frequently says, this letter is from me and from this person and this person, which in that day was a convention that said, we've talked about this, and I'm not just giving you my thoughts, I'm giving you our thoughts. So other people have had input into how this letter is formed. Uh, Romans is so, is so, it shows the, a, a depth of thinking and organization uh, that scholars suggest it had to have been done on multiple drafts. And not just multiple drafts, it would have been building, and Paul pretty much uh, from what he says in here, he's giving them kind of a download of what he preaches everywhere, the gospel that he preaches everywhere, because he's never met these people in Rome. 
And so he's giving them this download of, of what he preaches everywhere. And so uh, the, the idea is that most likely all kinds of years of his teaching has gone into this. Also, we know that Paul never traveled alone. He always had ministry partners. And they would walk from one city to another and set up shop because he, was, he worked with leather and, and he worked with people who were tra traveling people, business people. And so uh, we're, on the way, they would have talked about these things and they would have honed the exact message. And when they're settled down, they would have talked about, he and his colleagues would have talked about, I'm going to talk about this, and I'm going to write about this, and I'm going to write about this, but maybe you should do this first. This, this was a, almost certainly a collaborative effort over a long period of time with drafts. It is so meticulously written. Not all the letters of Paul are this way, and you can see the difference in the ones that are more kind of... He, and he didn't write any of the letters himself in his own hand. He'd bring in someone who could do that, a scribe, and uh, who is going to be very careful to use this very expensive scroll and do it well. And sometimes you can tell he's invited a scribe in, and they've talked about it, and then he can dictate it, and it's a short letter. He could probably dictate it in one, in one shot, but not Romans. Romans is not like that. So today's passage, we're going to look at Romans 12, 1 and 2. And it is one of the better-known um, It's one of the better-known passages in the Bible. It's one of the most important passages for understanding what it means to follow Jesus. It's a passage that today, in our cultural moment, we need to really uh, have this down and understand what it's talking about. It's packed with meaning. Uh, in a, just two, in the original language, two beautifully crafted sentences, the Apostle Paul creates a hinge passage between the first 11 chapters of Romans and the last five, uh, five chapters. So he, he, it, it's, it's just beautifully, beautifully uh, crafted. It encapsulates what is the proper response to the gospel of grace that he's been talking about in the first 11 chapters. What is the, what is the best response? How should we respond to that? How do we live in grace, because we don't move beyond it. How do we live in the grace that God has, has given us? It explains how to live wisely. I mean, that's one of the major points of these two, uh, these two verses, which to live wisely in Scripture means to live more and more in alignment with God's plans, God's purposes, and God's designs, all right? So, I want to invite you to open your Bibles. Turn to Romans chapter 12 if you're not there already. If you are there uh, already, um, I don't have the page number, uh, sorry, uh, but there's Bibles in the seat rack in front of us. You can grab one of those. And, um, and in, your, in your outlines, if you haven't looked at it, there is a, a kind of a, a, a sentence flow of this passage, and we're going we're gonna to mark that up. So you might want to get a pen ready and, uh, and be ready to mark it, mark it up. Okay, so... Uh, let's, let's, hear the, let's hear our passage being read by one of our five ochres. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world 
but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. All right, so remember, this is a hinge passage. It is summarizing what should be our response to this gospel that he's been talking about for 11, 11 chapters. And I'm going to show you how it functions that way, why it's not just referring to when it says, therefore, and, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to show you how some of this works. And hopefully, as we do this, uh, you'll get some clues how to, you can more deeply read and understand the Bible as well. Uh, so, we're going to start with that word, therefore. And by the way, uh, thank you for being my guinea pigs. This is the first time I've ever done this. And I am really nervous about it, and I'm especially nervous that I'm going to unplug something and I'm going to have nothing to talk about with you. Uh, but it's not just that. I just don't know how this is going to work. So, you know, kind of bear with me uh, on this. Um, after today, I may never do it again. Uh, we'll see. All right, so one of the things that's really helpful in Scripture whenever you're reading is to look at some of the... Um, I was going to look up this word to make sure. I think they're conjunctions, the things that connect things, the words like and and but, therefore, that connect ideas to what comes before it and all that sort of thing. And the word therefore is a really important word. Whenever you see the, there, the word therefore, it means it's, you got to say, well, obviously, there's something that has been said before it, right? Therefore, this. So, what is that? What, what is that? So, we're going to look at at that word, therefore, for just a moment and say, why is it there? What, what is it referring to? What is it referring back to? And, um, and so, uh, we get a few clues from this passage. One of the clues is this phrase, in view of God's mercy. And I've changed the order a little bit to kind of create a, a logical sentence flow. But I, he says, I urge you in view of God's mercy. So when he's talking about God's mercy, he's actually talking about God's grace. And the reason we know that is because uh, it's not the first time he uses God's mercy in this, in fact, in this letter. Uh, in fact, if you go back to chapters 9 through 11, uh, you'll find him using it seven different times out of a total of 11 times in the whole letter. Now, the other four times in the letter, it's not even referring to God's mercy. It's just referring to mercy in another, you know, in the context as it's about something else. It's like someone having mercy or uh, God, you know, it's, it's not talking about God's mercy. So, the seven times, I think it's all seven, that it occurs in chapters 9 through 11, it's about God's mercy shown to us by His grace and the gospel in Jesus Christ. That's what it's just a quick way of saying the whole gospel and what God has done for us. So, it equals, you might say, in chapters 9 through 11, it, it would suggest, because that's what comes right before this, that it's talking about grace, and it's talking about the gospel. All right, so that's what it's talking about. So, that would suggest that the therefore looks back to at least chapters 9 through 11, because of the word mercy repeating over and over again. But the fact that mercy talks about the gospel takes us all the way back to chapter 1, where he says, I'm presenting to you the gospel. <laughs> and, and that is the subject, the main subject of this entire letter. There's some other suggestions that also suggest, or some other 
clues that also suggest that, that therefore is looking back to the entire book and creates this hinge for the entire letter up to this point. And uh, one of them is the word worship. Uh, so the word worship is, uh, takes us takes us back to um, the very first chapter where in Romans 1.25, in fact, let's go back there. You, you have Romans open. Turn to Romans 1. And in verse 25, for example, um, it's talking about how humanity has turned away from God, and it's talking about all of us. We've all turned away from God, and we've not even acknowledged that God exists. And that's, that's our natural state now, uh, ever since Genesis 3. That's our natural state unless God awakens in us and calls us into a relationship with Him. So in verse 25, it says, They, speaking about humanity, all of humanity, exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. So when he starts talking in here about offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, and this is your true and proper worship, it's, it's taking us back in thought all the way back to the very beginning of the letter. Now, that could be just a one-time thing, but that's not the only time that it does this. Um, also, it does this when it talks about the mind. All right, so if you'll look at, um, for example, at 125, so you're already back there. Um, no, that's not the, the passage, let's see. 128, 128. It says, furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind. To a depraved mind. Now, you have to understand is when Paul gets to chapter 12 and he's creating the hinge and kind of summarizing and talking about a response, and he talks about the renewing of the mind, we're talking here about a reversal, aren't we? We're talking about a reversal from where we had depraved minds, now we're going to have renewed minds. So, when I underline here, um, just think of, uh, of this as being a hyperlink like you might when you're on a website and it's underlined and you hit that and it takes you to something else. The Bible does that all the time. I mean, it does it all the time. We're going to be seeing this as we go throughout this passage. There's all these hyperlinks that take us back to other passages. The other thing, too, is when, when a word is used like worship or a word like mind is used, we oftentimes think of words as having meaning um, that if you want to find its meaning, what you need to do is go to a dictionary and look in the dictionary and look, at, look it up. And there are dictionaries of Greek words. So you've got a Greek word. What are the different ways that it can be translated? What does it basically mean in English? But it's not how language works. When a word is packed with meaning, like the word mind here is packed with meaning, it's not so much a dictionary as you have to be thinking of as, um, as one scholar puts it, an encyclopedia. So instead of looking to a dictionary entry, if you want to understand what mind means, you almost have to do, do an encyclopedic entry that's going to talk about 
how that word is understood in that whole culture and throughout the scripture. Think encyclopedia, which is much longer and gives you much more information as opposed to a dictionary kind of meaning. Um, so there are other hyperlinks. Look at chapter 8, verse 5. Um, we could go to more, but I want to show you, especially in chapter 8, on mind. The Apostle Paul is contrasting people who now as Christians live according to the Spirit, in alignment with the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit, versus people who are living in alignment with their flesh, meaning their disordered desires, the part of them that still hasn't been redeemed, that we're still waiting when Christ returns that it's going to be made right again and going to be healed completely. And so in chapter 8, verse 5, it says, for those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But when he talks here, it's about the renewal of the mind that happens by following the Spirit. That's, that's, that's where our minds get set. Our minds get set on God, the Holy Spirit. So let me uh, write in some of these passages so that you have it. Uh, the worship passage is uh, Romans 1.25. The mind is Romans 1.28.8.5. There are others in chapter 8 that you could go back to, but those are some of the, some of the passages that are being... Um, being hyperlinked to and show us what its meaning is. Um, so, let me see where I am here. All right, so what we have here is we're looking all the way back and therefore to all Romans 1 through 11. And that's how you discover that, that kind of a thing when you're looking at a passage and you're trying to see what it's being talked about here. All right, so the way that I have this sentence flowed, it helps understand kind of the logic of where it goes. So he's going to urge us to do something. And there are three things that he urges us to do in this passage, or he urged the Romans and indirectly urging us to do as well. So the first one is to offer your body as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. And he says, this is your true and proper worship. Uh, the second thing is do not conform to the pattern of this world, and we'll go into all of these in greater detail. And number three, he says, but be transformed. There's a contrast there with the word but. Um, by the way, there is, um, there is an, it's not translated in almost any translation, but there is the word and there. So to offer your bodies a living sacrifice and do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. So you've got three things that he is urging us, urging us to do. And, um, and so uh, by offering, we'll look at this in just a few moments, but by offering, we're going to offer, we're not going to conform, and we're going to be transformed, okay? By offering our bodies, the result is going to be, this is how you worship. This is how you truly, truly worship. And uh, we'll see what that means in just uh, a few moments. Um, but the final outcome 
of the whole thing, of everything he writes, is stated right here. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. You will test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So what he's really talking about here, when you hyperlink this back, um, it ties to the whole story of God. Because the whole story of God, this, the outcome, equals wisdom. This in Scripture, this kind of phrase, approving God's will, knowing what God's will is, is what the whole Bible is about. It's, it's about wisdom from God, wisdom from above for our lives. All right, so that's what I wanted to do to kind of geek out here a little bit. Therefore, in view of everything that we've seen, the mercy of God, the gospel, His grace, Paul urges them and urges us to do three things, to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, not to conform to the pattern of this world. So don't tells us one thing that we should not do. And then in contrast to that, we should be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And the result is going to be that we're going to have wisdom. We're going to live wisely. And again, when I say wisely, I'll explain it more in a few minutes. It's so much more than what we mean by the word living wisely. All right, so we're going to look at three keys to living wisely in this passage. Uh, the outcome is wisdom. All right, so three keys. Now, there we go. <laughs> Got to do my own slides. Um, key, three keys to living wisely. What is biblical wisdom? Well, biblical wisdom is, um, if you follow the hyperlinks all the way through Scripture, and you just follow them all the way back, what you find is that throughout the whole story of God, when you follow the hyperlinks, it takes us back all the way to the Garden of Eden. And it takes us back to a choice between two trees, a tree of life that gives you life and a tree of good, a knowledge of good and evil. So it gives you these choices. And... Um, which, by the way, the knowledge of good and evil is more than a choice. The two choices is more than a choice of just doing what's right and not doing what's wrong. I hope that by the time you leave today, you'll, you'll understand that this is bigger than just following some rules that God has given us. That this goes way beyond it. So the choice is about, uh, is between good and evil. Not just doing the right thing, not doing the wrong thing. It's about choosing who we will trust. So back in the Garden of Eden, it starts right there. Uh, the serpent, representing a satanic being, the Satan, says, God is keeping something from you. He told you not to eat of this one tree because he's trying to keep something from you. And um, so it's a question of this choice is, am I going to trust God in what he says, or am I going to trust Satan? Or am I going to trust people? Or am I going to trust my culture? Or am I going to trust my parents? Or am I going to trust my boss? Who am I going to trust? Am I going to trust what I feel inside? Or am I going to trust God? And it's about who we are, this choice. Because when the serpent gives, says, no, you can eat from this tree, God is trying to keep something from you. What is he trying to keep from you? He says, you eat from this tree and you will be like God. And that's it. That's what they want, and they take from the tree. We want to be our own gods. We want to run our own lives. 
So wisdom is about a choice, and the choice is about so much more than just do the right thing, don't do the wrong thing. It's about all these things. It's about good and evil. It's about who am I going to trust. It's about who am I? Am I God's? Am I you know, belonging to God? Or do I belong to myself? And in some way, I get to call all the shots. So when Paul says, then you will be able, in this passage in Romans, then you will be able to test and approve, which is basically the word discern. You're going to be able to discern what God's will is He's not just talking about doing the right thing, just applying the rules. So, we just finished a series on sexuality. And uh, last week I said this sermon could function as an extension of that series. So, let me give you an example of how it functions in that way. So, in Corinth, um, one of the letters of Paul is called 1 Corinthians. It was a letter that Paul wrote to the churches in Corinth, many churches, they were all meeting in houses, and he wrote a letter to all the churches. He had founded those churches and had left, and he'd been gone for a while. And then he had gotten a report, and he tells us this in the letter. He had gotten a report from one of the families in the church about several things that were happening in the church, and he had received a letter from that same person. So they came with a letter, that person came with a letter, presented it to Paul, we have these questions for you. And so in 1 Corinthians... He goes, hey, now about the matter you wrote to me about. Now about the other matter. Now about the other matter. Now about the other matter. And then everything else, when this person came from Chloe's household, is what he says, uh, I found out that you were divided among each other. Some of you are saying, I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Peter. You know, that sort of thing. So you have all these different things that, that he's heard. One of the things that he's heard is that there are people in that church who are going to pagan temples and sleeping with prostitutes there because the pagan temples had prostitutes in them. And so that's one of the things that Paul learns in that letter. Now, uh, the reason they probably felt they could do that is for the same reason a lot of Americans who call themselves Christians uh, a lot of times do some things that are real head scratchers because they had a Greek mindset of the body and the spirit or the soul or whatever you want to call it. And so they said, what I do with my body doesn't really matter very much. What really matters is what's inside of me, what my motives are, what my intentions are, and all that sort of thing. And so that's the Greek kind of thinking. That's not the Hebrew kind of thinking that the whole Bible is from start to finish. Uh, What was Paul's response? Did he say, you're breaking God's rules. Don't do it. Let me read you a verse from the Old Testament. He doesn't do that. Instead, he says, don't you know... (laughs) Don't you know that you, your entire self, have been united with Christ? You've been united with Christ. And when you go to that temple and you have sex with a prostitute, you are uniting yourself with her. Now, where does he get that idea? You're uniting yourself with her. It's from Genesis 1. (laughs) All right? It's from Genesis 1. It's, It's how it's described. A man shall leave his father and mother, and the two will become one flesh. And, um, and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Jesus expounds on it. Paul expounds on it in other places. So there's a hyperlink, an encyclopedia of information there of when, he's, when Paul says this. He says, you go to the temple prostitute, you who are united with Christ are then uniting yourself in sex with a prostitute. You realize what you're doing, he says? You're uniting Christ to a temple prostitute. <laughs> <laughs> 
That's the answer he gives. Not follow the rule. He tells him why the rule, why the rules even exist. And then he tells him a rule. He says, flee from all sexual immorality, okay? He just kind of gives him a rule. <laughs> and then he stops and he gives some more reasoning behind it in that passage. He says, don't you realize that your bodies, your very bodies, are the temple of the Holy Spirit? That the Holy Spirit resides in you? Don't you realize that when you sin with your body in that way, you're actually sinning with God's temple? All right, so that's the kind of, of teaching. That's why last week I emphasized it's all about who are you going to trust? Are you going to trust Jesus? He's trustworthy. You should trust Him. I, I sensed, you know, through some conversations or indirectly when we did the sexuality series, some people were a little bit uncomfortable. Just tell us what's right and wrong. <laughs> like, tell us the rule is how some people kind of wanted it. You know, just tell us the rule and we'll follow the rules, okay? Some of you will, <laughs> kind of, um, because the rules extend to the heart and that's where it becomes really messy. Uh, but we didn't just talk about the rules because the Bible doesn't just talk about the rules. It talks about the why behind the rules, and it really appeals to that. Even the giving of the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament, when it's given, God says, um, before He gives the Ten Commandments, God says to the people of Israel, if you follow these commandments, people are going to look from the nations, which is who they're supposed to be reaching for, for God, the nations are going to look at you and going to say, and this isn't the only thing they're going to say, but some people are going to look, and they're going to look at you and they're going to say, what a wise and understanding people these are. Because the Ten Commandments are there, not so that you don't break the rules that God has, but so that you live wisely, so that you live wisely. And then he adds, and people are going to just look in wonder at you because your God lives so near to you. What other gods, it says, live near their people like your God lives near you? Another example of developing wisdom rather than following rules. Um, you know, there's a law, as you all know, that you're not supposed to text and drive at the same time, right? And let's say you have a teenager in the home and they're starting to drive. You can say to them, or maybe you catch them doing it, and you say, hey, it is a law. Don't text and drive. Don't text and drive. You'll get a ticket that way. Well, what, what are they going to think? They're going to think, well, how's a police person going to know that I'm texting and driving if I'm really, really careful? I'm not going to do it that much. I'm going to do it very carefully. So there's a, you know, we like to get around rules. It's almost like that rule is there and, and we like to, you know, touch the wet paint when it says don't touch the wet paint. We talked about that a few weeks ago. Romans 7 actually talks about that sort of thing. Okay, but what if we say instead, and I'm sure you've said something like this if you have a teenager in your home, would you drive drunk? No, I wouldn't drive drunk. Well, study after study shows that when you're texting and driving, it's equivalent of driving impaired by alcohol or drugs. Okay? That gets a little bit more instead of this is the rule. It gets to something behind the rule. That might win over. Another thought that might help, you can say something like, can you imagine driving along and you get distracted by something and... You, you know, some papers maybe fly and you go and imagine that in that moment you look up and you run over someone and you kill them. That can happen. It can happen to any of us, right? 
Now imagine, you ran over someone because you were doing something that everybody has told you is the wrong thing to do while you're driving. It's like driving drunk. Imagine living with that for the rest of your life, okay? It might not convince someone not to text and drive, but it goes a lot farther than just saying, there's a rule and you ought to follow the rule. If you don't follow the rule, you're gonna get in trouble uh, at some point for not following the rule. So what do we mean when we talk about living wisely? Uh, what we mean by, talk, by living wisely is very different than what the Bible means. Okay, here I'm going to have to go into hyperspeed to finish the sermon. Um, so if you follow the hyperlinks throughout the Scripture and you learn from all these passages that talk about wisdom, here's the definition of living wisely. It's living in alignment with God and His purposes, His plans, His designs. It, the Bible can speak of it as the good life. In a world separated from God because of our rebellion, our treason against Him as our King, and a world that's out of alignment with His purposes, plans, and desires. So living wisely is getting more in alignment with God in a world that is out of alignment with God. Okay, so there's a passage, Psalm 1, 1 through 3. I was going to do the same thing again. I'm not going to do it. You can do it yourself. And Psalm 1 through 3, 1, 1 through 3, is kind of sets up all the psalms. It's proverbial. It's, uh, it's a psalm, it's poetry, but it functions like a proverb. And, uh, you know, just it, proverbs are general principles, wise principles. The first three verses of, of Psalm 1 has like a perfect parallel to Romans 12.2. So when Paul is writing Romans 12.2, either intentionally, consciously, or uh, subconsciously, he's got Romans 1, 1 through 3 on, on his mind. But not just Romans 1, 1 through 3 on his mind, because it hyperlinks to all these other places. Again, it goes all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2, um, what wisdom is. It, it all is just hyperlinking. So I'm going to let you like, do that on your own. Uh, we're not going to do that, but it almost has the same purpose and contrast and everything as verse 2 of Romans chapter 12. All right. Three keys to living wisely. The first key is worship God by offering your entire self and your everyday life to God as a sacrifice. All right, I tried to get it all in there of what he says. Therefore, I urge you, 12.1, if you look back at that passage. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. All right, so when he says, offer your bodies, here are some of the links, the hyperlinks that, from Paul that help you understand. What does Paul mean when he says your body? And I'm giving it to you right here. It's the whole person, the whole of life. So in Galatians 2, it says, I have been, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live but Christ lives in me. This life I now live in the body. The body is very important, okay? It's not like, you know, my spirit is all that matters. The body is important. I live this bodily life, this embodied life by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Here's another place where he talks. Uh, well, I guess that's the only place I'm going to get. There's other ones like this. So the message translation uh, or paraphrase, speaks this way of it. It says, take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, 
going to work and walking around life and place it before God as an offering. Okay, so it's like give your whole self, but just not just give your whole self, give your whole life, the way you live your life, give all of that to God. When he says, I urge you to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, that's what he's, what he's getting at, your whole life. Um, Paul is taking imagery of the temple and he's saying, bring this temple imagery right into your everyday life. Um, I had a godfather died several years ago that I'm very, very close. I'm named after him. Henry, part of my name, is named after him. And uh, he was, he, he, he never walked with God, wasn't a Christian, used to drop his wife off at church and, and go pick her up again when it was done and never claimed to be a Christian. But he went to a retreat within the Catholic church called Cusillo and it changed his whole life. I don't know how she got him to go, but he went. And I asked him one time, I said, what did you learn at Cusillo? He said, I learned that Jesus is not just about Sunday. Jesus is every day. That's what we're talking about here. It's about living wisely, understands that, that it's my whole life is an offering to God. All right, so a second key, so we're going to cover the third one next week, is do not conform to the pattern of this world. So that word pattern of this world actually translates the Greek just says this age. And so it's talking about the age that we live in now. In Scripture, there's two ages. There's this age and the age to come. We're still living in this age. The age to come is broken in. If you've taken the story of God, the already, but not yet, because it hasn't come in fullness. All right. So in Galatians, um, might be missing something. So in 2 Corinthians 4, it says, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ. This is, this is the thought world. This is the encyclopedic understanding uh, of this. Uh, in Galatians 1.3, which I don't think I have. Oh, I do have it. It says, the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age. So, in, in Scripture, this age is an evil age. In Ephesians, speaking of this age but not using the language, it says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So, there's so many hyperlinks that are going here. Um, a couple of translations of that passage that are famous. J.B. Phillips uh, years ago in 1950s, translated that passage this way. He said, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold, British spelling. Um, the message says, don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Why? Because it is a pattern of thinking that is actually evil, not all evil, but there is an evil that permeates the pattern of thinking in our world. Those are the things that are on his mind. So, oops. John Mark Comer in a new book has come up with this chart and builds the whole book around this. And we're going to come back to this many times, but I just want to introduce you to this idea. Um, what happens is the devil is known as a deceiver in Scripture. That's his primary thing that he does. So he gives us deceptive ideas they play into our flesh, which has disordered desires. Every single one of us has disordered desires. Our desires are not, they point 
to good things, but the way that they express themselves is oftentimes, and what they focus in on is disordered compared to what God had ordered when He created us. And then what happens is we take the disordered desires and we normalize it in society. Just think of our world. Just think of the sexuality series that we just finished. How many messages in our world are based on what the Scripture calls a disordered desire? But the pressure to kind of live into these, this thing that has been normalized, which goes back to satanic deception and evil that plays into this. And then after a while, you don't even need the devil. <laughs> these just play over and over again, and different societies develop it in different ways. That, and it's always been that way. It's not like we're, we live in a, you know, in a terrible world. No, it has always been that way. We've always had these disordered desires. So N.T. Wright uh, wrote an open letter to the British Prime Minister after the British Prime Minister said, um, said, the Anglican Church, this was back about 20 years, the Anglican Church needs to get with the program and ordain women bishops. Now, N.T. Wright happens to believe that women should be ordained as bishops. That's beside the point. But he didn't like a prime minister saying that the church should get with the program. Now, I just want to show you something that he said uh, here real quick. He said, the spirit of the age is, the spirit of this age, which is what the program is, is notoriously fickle. You might as well, walking in a mist, take a compass bearing on a mountain goat. Then he goes on. He says, the church's foundation documents, to say nothing of the founder himself, were notoriously on the wrong side of history. The gospel was foolishness to the Greeks, said St. Paul, and a scandal to Jews. The early Christians got a reputation for believing in all sorts of ridiculous things, such as humility, chastity, and resurrection. Those, those things were ridiculous in Roman Empire. Standing for the poor and giving slaves equal status as the free. And for valuing women more highly than anyone else had ever done. People thought them crazy, but they stuck to their countercultural gospel. If the church had allowed prime ministers to tell them what the program was, it would have sunk without trace in 50 years. If Jesus had allowed Caiaphas or Pontius Pilate to dictate their program to him, there wouldn't have been a church in the first place. It was because the program wasn't the worldly program, but the program of the gospel that yesterday commemorated Rosa Parks' birthday. And Rosa Parks and the whole civil rights movement was birthed with an understanding of biblical justice. And so, if she had gone with the program, which was a twisting of the gospel that uh, had control of the South, she never would have sat on that bus seat and stayed there when she was told to go to the back. She never would have done it. She was following the gospel. Other people were, you know, saying they were following the gospel. They were not following the gospel. They had twisted it and distorted it into something other than what it was. That's the kind of program that we have for our lives. Do not conform to this world. It doesn't mean everything in the world is bad. It just means we always look at the world and we say, we're going to do what God says, not what the world says. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you're a God who not only shows us grace, you show us how to live. 
You show us what is wise, how we can live for you in powerful ways, and how we can live a life that is more pleasing to you and makes sense for the way that you've designed us to live. Father, help us to live in those ways and to follow you in everything that we do, uh, to offer ourselves completely to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.